0: Again, we're so glad that you're with us. My wife came to the first service today, and when your wife comes to the first service, she tells you all the things not to say for the second service. And she said, she, she enjoyed everything she did, but she said, you're pumping up the Christmas series already, and nobody cares. It's September. So I'm not going to tell you about all the hard work I'm doing trying to, to nail down our Christmas series, but I'm working really hard, and I'm really close. And if you want to know, you can come find out and vote. You can vote. I got three options right now. So I'm excited. I love Christmas. Absolutely love Christmas. So I'm open, hoping you will come and uh, enjoy it. I can not tell you we will have our Christmas Eve service two and four. And then uh, Christmas Day is on a Sunday this year. I know. We're working on that. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do. And then the next week on New Year's Day is on Sunday. And so a little, this one of those years where we got to talk about as a church what's strategically best. So, so I didn't talk about Christmas at all. My wife told me not to. All right. We are in a series um, in Nahum. It's an Old Testament book. Matter of fact, you can start heading there now. Could you switch the lights over to the message so I can see faces? Um, switch, uh, yeah, perfect. Um, Nahum is an Old Testament book, and a lot of people say, Pastor, why are you preaching? Nahum, it's a book about God's wrath. Well, Nahum, the word Nahum itself, the author's name means comfort. And so we as believers should read about God's wrath and what he's going to do to set wrong right, and we should take comfort in that. So this morning, I'm gonna take you even further into how we as believers ought to take this in and, and not be excited about, we're never excited about God's wrath. If you come across a preacher who just loves talking about hell and people dying, if you come across Christians that are excited about that people are gonna get what they deserve, I mean, that's wrong. That's just, we should not delight in that. Matter of fact, I will prove to you by the end of this service, God does not delight in that people perish. He does not. And so we're going to talk this morning uh, through that. You can meet me in Nahum. It's, uh, if you don't know where Nahum is, if you go to Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Turn a left hard, go five books left, and you'll run into the book of Nahum. You can meet me in chapter 2. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 this morning. While you're getting there and finding that, this is the week. The uh, Franklin Graham God Loves You Tour is on Thursday. And so I hope you're preparing yourself. Uh, it's in Flint. It's at Crossroads Village. My wife and I took a drive yesterday to make sure we could find it and make sure there's no construction on the road. You know, while we were driving, both of my daughters called. Josh ended up calling later in the day, but both of my daughters called and they're like, what are you guys doing? Like, we're just driving. We got a big event on Thursday and we're driving to find the location. Like, oh. You guys are old. <laughs> I'm like, no, we're not. We're not old. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, we're old. We are. So, anyways, we went and scouted it out, and uh, just so you guys know, there are a couple things that we found out about it: um, if you follow GPS, it'll take you there the back roads. I would encourage you not to take Dort Highway, or if you do take Dort Highway, pray a lot because you'll see the need. Uh, it's 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 pretty sad there, but on your way to. Crossroads Village, once you get there, I'd encourage you to get there early on Thursday. Number one, the information says the event starts at 7, but there's actually music that starts at 6.30. And so you want to be there. You want to park and be ready to walk a little bit because it looks like all the parking is a little bit away from the venue. And don't forget, you've got to bring, it's like sitting on the lawn at Pine Knob, you've got to bring your own chairs. So bring chairs, park, get there by 6.30 so you can uh, hear the music. The newsboys are there, Michael Tate, love Michael Tate, um, and some other people, I don't remember their name, are going to be singing. And then uh, Franklin Graham will give the gospel. So let's be prepared. Let's be praying up and be ready. I know we have a group of about 30 that's going to go Thursday morning from the bus here at Oakwood, and we're going to drive over there to help set up the evening. Um, we're going to leave at 8.30, 8.30 Thursday morning for the workers. We'll drive there, we'll be back sometime around noon, and then we'll all head back Thursday night. We're excited about that event. So I'm going to pray right now, uh, not only for the beginning of the message, but also for that event. Let's pray over that. Would you pray with me? Father God, we want to lift this opportunity we have Thursday up to you, God. We pray that people would come and hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you can change lives. And God, I pray that there would be a good turnout there Thursday night at Crossroads Village. And uh, Father, I pray a blessing on Franklin Graham as he's taken the uh, baton from his father, Billy Graham, and we lost him, Father. What an incredible man for decades. Um, But but Father, we thank you that Franklin is, is able to preach your word and share with us that wonderful hope. And then if you're able to right now, um, those who are in this worship center, if you would just uh, say this prayer silently. You don't have to say it out loud. But say, God, since there's something you want me to hear, I'm willing to listen. Can you just give that prayer to God? God, since there's something you want me to hear, I'm willing to listen. And God, I pray that you'd be glorified. I pray that everyone hearing this would be edified. And I pray that Satan would be horrified. In Jesus' name, amen. Just love. One of my favorite titles for a sermon series because it's a double entendre. You could say just love, uh, but it's really just love. God's love is a just love. Micah 6 8, He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Justice. Our God is a God of justice, and His love demands justice. So His love is a just love. So we've been talking about uh, all sorts of things in the book of Nahum. We've got this week and next week, and then we'll go back to the book of Romans until Christmas time. The big idea for today is there are two different destinies, destruction or restoration. Destruction or restoration. You'll see that throughout scripture. God promises he will restore. Those who come and ask for, he will restore. But then we also hear that people do perish, and that's the sad reality destruction. For those who are unwilling to repent and unwilling to turn to God, unwilling to call God, God. Remember one of the first things in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And and the world is full of other, small g, gods. Small g, because nothing is truly God, except for God Himself. But we put other things on the throne of our life. We put other things that we live for, and God says, no, nothing. And so if, if anybody is unwilling to turn to God and put Him on the throne of their life, then, then destruction comes. So in Nahum 2, 1 through 4, let me read this. I find it very interesting today, and then we'll make some comments on it. Nahum 2, verse 1. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them to waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day that they are made ready. The spears of the juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. And I'm going to stop there because the rest of the verses are just details about the gore of the destruction. The wrath poured out. You can read that on your own. I find in mixed company with young kids sometimes. We don't know, need to go into all the gory details. But the truth is, I see three things in this passage. Warning, restoration, and destruction. Number one, in verse one, I see a warning. An attacker advances against you in guard, the fortress, watch the roads, brace yourself, marshal all your strength. I find this very interesting as you study it and you look at all the commentaries of the theologians who write about these things. And one of them was really, they were like, isn't this great? The, the mercy of God and the patience of God, he's given them another chance. And I felt bad because honestly, it's not. At this point in Nahum, you need to know that God has already declared justice is coming. It's done. And this warning is actually what we call a prophetic perfect tense. The author is talking about something as if it's happened, or as if it's happening and it's not happened yet. So it's in the perfect tense. And it's actually a literary device called a taunt song. You know, I mean, you get a yellow car, or yellow, you know, football, they throw the flag at you if you taunt, right? Or basketball, you know, you get a technical foul, taunting, no taunting. Well, this is actually a literary device where God himself is saying, Hey, watch out, they're coming. Better watch the roads. You better put your guards out. And basically what he's saying is, good luck. It's too late. This is going to happen. So there's a warning there, but it's a perfect poetic tense of it's going to happen. Then I see the, well, I got to go back because I love talking about warnings. Don't you love warnings? Everybody say warn. I think you can really tell the intelligence of a society based on the warning labels that they have to put on things. <laughs> I was just I was working on my mower again yesterday and I noticed they had to put that warning sticker and I I don't know if you're an artist, I don't know if this would excite you or not. Who's the artist that gets to draw the warning pictures? On the mower, there's actually a picture of a guy sticking his hand under the mower blades and it shows his fingers flying off. <laughs> Who got to draw that? <laughs> And why do we have to put a warning label? But obviously somebody's like, wow, listen to that fun noise. No, no, don't do that. I literally saw this the other day. On the battery, like a car battery, the big, big car battery, it says, do not drink the contents. (laughs) Who did that? Because somebody had to have done that for them to say, well, we better tell them not to. Somebody mistake that for a six-pack, you know? (laughs) I don't know. But warning labels, warning labels. And I don't know, maybe it's because people are like, are like me, maybe like you. Anybody here do things without thinking them through? Or even when people are warning you not to do something, you still do them? Okay, no, you can't turn him in. No, no volunteering. My, I'm not like that anymore because I've grown to maturity. But, but, but when, when I was in college, I remember we had a uh, suite. So we had a dorm room and a dorm room, and in between there was a bathroom. There's four of us. So we, we actually took all four of our beds and put them on this room, all four of our desks and couches and stuff over here, and so uh, the, the bathroom is in the middle. Of and so my my friends Wayne and Cliff, we just had such a great time in college, and, and Wayne had gone into the bedroom part and lit a candle. Uh, you know, I don't know. We did weird things. So a candle. He had a candle. And, and then we got to over here got to talking and that's what happens in college you started talking probably started doing weird things hours passed and we're having a great time and then we go to go into the bed, ba- and the candle had been uh, and you know what happens when the candle it's all the wax is burnt up and the wick is gone and you know how it just it's just a flame in a and this was a glass jar about this big and it was just liquid and a flame coming up a big flame not a little flame i'm talking not this little light of mine i'm talking and and i see the flame and i had a huge cup of water And I go toward it, and my friend Wayne says, Don, don't pour water on a grease fire. And I said, why not? (laughs) Notice I did this first. I said, why not? (laughs) As soon as I poured water, you know what happens. It hit that and went, the glass shattered, and the flame liquids flying everywhere. After 15 minutes of putting out fire everywhere, Wayne looked at me and he said, that's why not. Why do you ask the question after you did the dumb thing? Warnings are there to to let us know. Danger, right? And we as a society obviously are at an intelligent place where we need to be warned quite often about things. God warns. This specific text is kind of like already coming true. But don't forget. Some people would say that, well, then why? Then God didn't warn them. I want to remind you, the book of Nahum is the follow-up to the book of Jonah. 100 years earlier, Jonah had went to the the village of Nineveh and preached repentance. And they did repent. Remember, the Bible says they did turn to the Lord for a moment. And then they went back to false gods, doing terrible things to God's people. They were horrific and violent and, and, and overran people. And so now... 100 years later, God is saying, I warned you, but you didn't listen. The second thing I see in this passage is he turns now to God's people. He leaves Nineveh, the Ninevites, and he goes to God's people. And we see restoration. Yahweh's promise to restore Israel to glory. Yahweh is God's uh, official name in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, all caps. Yahweh. Yahweh's promise to restore Israel to glory. And in verse 2, he says, The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. I'm going to come back to that at the end of my message today because that's one of the signs of, of destruction, that you've lived someplace and you've planted vineyards so you could have good wine. And, and they come in and they destroy them. They, they either cut them down or they burn them down. And you're like, ah. Oh. We worked hard for that, and now we'll never have that. And God says in verse 2, I'll restore that to you. We'll come back to that in a while. And then we get to verses 3 through 13. And I'm just going to give you a quick run through instead of reading it all. We see in verse 4, the walls are breached and chariots enter in. It's really cool uh, when you study uh, history about what happened here. The invading armies had found out that they had a, a river that ran to their fortress and then went under the fortress to provide them water. And what the invading army did here was they dammed up the river so it wouldn't flow in. And they waited until it was at its full force. And then they let it go. And then when it came rushing, it actually breached the walls of the city. You know, have you been watching TV? It's horrible what's happening in Puerto Rico. Uh, did you see the footage of the bridge? that, that The waters came and the bridge just left unbelievable washes away down the river the power of water and these armies way back in those days they knew so they dammed the river up then they let it loose and the torrents came and poof not only did it crash into the fortress it made a hole big enough for the horses and chariots to ride through and they did they came in i find it interesting that some people love looking at old testament things and finding these hidden secrets And so many people have used, especially probably over here on this side of the state, you all auto workers. Verse 4, they say, or verse 3 and 4 is a prophecy of cars. Yeah. The metal on the chariots flashed on the day where they were made ready. They look like flaming torches darting all about. That's obviously talking about traffic. I don't want to make light of it, but I'm just going to tell you. I just, you know, if you find people that are always finding the hidden secret message that nobody else gets, avoid them. I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to say it very clearly. God wrote his word to his people so they would know. First John, look it up. First John three, verse three. I write these things so that you may know. He didn't write a secret coded message for one person in 2020 to write a book and make a lot of money off of. So don't get caught up in all the mysteries and hidden treasures of the Bible. Read it. Read it. I don't think this is talking about cars. I think we later come along and say, that sounds like it could be a car. That's my, that was free. Assyrian leaders fall, verses five and six, and the palace is flooded. Obviously a torrent came through, not only made a wall, a hole in the wall, but the water rushed in the palace, flooded the whole place. And in verse 7 and 8, the Assyrians are running and not holding ground. I want to remind you that this was written so that Sherechanib, whatever the name of this Assyrian leader was, remember Sherechanib, whatever? He was prideful and arrogant. He declared that God was not God. He told God's prophets, Your God can't save you. And, and he made all these defamatory statements about God. And so now God is writing him back and he's letting him know, Hey, you think you're so mighty. You think that everywhere you go, you take over lands and destroy armies. Well, I'm letting you know, on this day, your army will not stand. They're going to just fold and run. It's it's like a scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Run away! Run away! If you haven't watched it, you got it. It's my favorite movie. They didn't hold their ground. They're utterly destroyed. And then the palace is looted, of course. When the the villains come in, they, they pillage and they loot and they take all the things that they held dear. And then the Bible ends telling them in verse 10, the Assyrians are fearful and empty. Don't forget, Shrek and Ibn and the Assyrians, they felt like they ruled the world. They kind of did rule the world at the time, right? But they're not going to maintain that. When God's judgment comes and he says, it's done, it's done. And the Bible ends the story by telling them, all of you are going to be running around fearful and empty. Well, that's my take on the, the passage today, but I want to I make a leap and, and share with you what's on my heart about this passage because I believe uh, what we see here should tell us something today too. And I don't believe we can look at this and we should know at the top of the screen, God's plan remains the same. I want to let you know this story it was definitely uh, Nahum talking to Nineveh and letting the Shrekinib know that he, Nineveh's going down and the Assyrian army is going to be destroyed. But what we see here is the circular repetition of what always happens, how God deals with all things from all times. And so back then, this is what's happening, but today is still a lot like then. But God's plan remains the same. In God's plan, he always warns. Everybody say warn. That's the first verse. He warns. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, we see the original warning. Great, 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 great grandfather Adam and Eve are there in the garden and God tells them something. Now, I want to read this and have you determine in your own mind today, is God this wrathful villain who thrives on destruction? Or do you see something different in God's plan, how it always cycles and always keeps happening? Let's read Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die do you see a clear warning there? And do you see somebody who's like, who made one tree with only one fruit on it and said, here, don't touch it. No, you don't see that. What you see from the beginning is God saying, you have the whole garden and every tree and all the fruit and you're free to eat. Run around, munch, 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 munch. munch, munch. Run around, lick, 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 lick. Run around, eat, 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 all day long. Gorge yourself, be full, enjoy. But there's one tree. See, this is how I see God operating. God's not bent on destruction. God's not bent on withholding. He freely gave them all things, but one thing. And then on that one thing, He didn't say, "And don't eat this fruit, or it'll upset your tummy." No, the warning is so clear. Oh, this one tree. You must not eat of it, for on the day of you eat it, you will certainly die. Now, that's a warning statement. Very clear. But Adam and Eve were tempted by the Satan who said, Did God really say? Look it up in Genesis. This is what Satan said. Did God really say that you would die? I mean, didn't he mean something other than that? And he twists and he lies. But God always warns. He warns. Second illustration of this is the worldwide flood in the Old Testament. Don't put that verse up yet. But we know in the Old Testament, then we have a whole land of people, and no one's turning to God except for Noah and his family. The Bible says he's the only righteous man. And and then what do we have? Do we see a warning there? God comes to Noah and he says, uh, It's done. These people are wicked, and they will not turn to me. And I'm going to destroy the world with a, a worldwide flood. But Noah, build an ark. Now, Again, theologians, gotta love them. They sit around with their pipes and their little patches on their their uh, jackets and they talk about these things and, and so many of them have said, you know what, if you read that and God never warned the people that the flood was coming and Noah never said anything to anybody. They had no idea. I don't believe that's true. And, and I wanna show you where I came to that belief is in this verse, 2 Peter 2, 5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and the seven others. A preacher of righteousness. Anybody know, what does a preacher do? A preacher preaches, amen? Marie, uh, my family would tell you, any discussion we have ends up in a sermon. Can you imagine living in my house? Every meal, there's three points in a poem. I mean, I'm, I'm a preacher, so that's what I do. I got some thoughts about it. And I'm going to tell you with every word starting with the same letter. That's how I do things, right? The Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. And besides, God didn't say, Noah, I'm sending a flood. It's starting to rain. Here you go. No, God said, Noah, build an ark. Has anybody been to Kentucky to see the replica? Have you been there? Did you all do the same thing I did? I pulled in the parking lot and I went, that's bigger than I thought it was. That's a big boat. God said, Noah, build an ark. And he told him to build that ark. That took time. Are you telling me that the people didn't know something was up? Are you telling me that nowhere on day 45 that that Noah's like, somebody didn't come up and say, Noah, what you doing? I'm building an ark. What's an ark? Are you telling me that a preacher of righteousness isn't going to take the time to say, God has told us, He's going to destroy this world of flood. And if you're not in the boat, you will not be saved. Repent. Turn to God. I believe that because of 2 Peter 2, or 2 Peter 5, the one I just shared with you. He's a preacher of righteousness. I believe the people were warned. I believe the people knew the flood was coming. And they chose to ignore it. Kind of like today. There's preachers of righteousness. Franklin Graham is going to get up on Thursday night and tell people, turn to God. People will choose to reject that message. You need to be reminded today in Nahum and throughout Scripture that God always warns. Jesus is coming again. That's your warning now. We're in a period uh, just like between Jonah and Nahum. God's warning has been said and then God's patience. We're living in God's patience right now. But God's patience will not last forever. That doesn't mean he's bent on wrath. That means there comes an end to the patience when God says it's time to judge. See, there's coming a time when even Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour or the minute, but there's coming a time when God's going to look at Jesus and say, that's it. Go get them. Go get your church. And that's an end. And there's no, there's no, you can't change anything from that moment on. That's what happened to Nahum. The prophet came and he said, it's done. God's judging you. Look, the chariots are coming. And We're living in between that time now. You have time today because you are warned. God's always given warnings in the garden, at the flood, here today. Jesus is coming again. Matthew 24, 37 through 39 says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. I think it is exactly like it's going to be. There's that line there that said they had no idea what was coming. Why? Because they didn't listen. They didn't heed the warning. The warning was there. The people that were there, they saw Noah building an ark. And they probably chose to say, you're a nut job, Noah. You and your sons, you're crazy. Who builds a boat that big? You really believe God's going to condemn the whole world with a flood? And so they went about life, living Marrying and enjoying and doing life, not giving a thought because they just they didn't think anything was going to happen, and here we are today. And the Bible says it's going to be for people today, just like it was in the days of Noah. People are gonna say, I didn't know it was coming. You didn't listen to the warning, you didn't take heed, you thought we were all nut jobs, you thought we were crazy when we talked about Jesus. And so, yes, it's coming. The Bible says, like a thief in the night, and you're not going to be prepared. But you cannot say that God doesn't warn. He warns because he loves. And then he provides. Everybody say provides. This is what I love about God's patience. Not only does he warn first, but then he always provides. In the tree, in the garden, God said you can have any of these other trees. When it came to Noah and the ark, I'm destroying the world. But I'm going to have you build an ark. Get in the boat. You'll be saved. And I'm so thankful that God didn't have Noah close the door. Remember, who, who does the Bible say closed the door of the ark? God closed that door. I'm so glad that Noah didn't have to go and shut the door and, and shut out people. No, it was God that says, it's me. I'm going to take responsibility for this. I've warned them. I've given them time. But I'm going to bring wrath. And God's promising us today, he will bring wrath, but he does provide. And we're in that window when you can still accept his mercy and grace. He's patient and he's loving. What does God provide? There's several things God provides. Number one, he provides forgiveness. First John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you ask, you will be saved. I'll give you that promise today. If you ask him to forgive you of your sins, he will wipe it clean. The Bible says he removes it far as the east is from the west. He throws it in the ocean he puts up a do not go fishing sign. You can't drag them back up because in God's mind what's forgiven is forgiven. There is now no more condemnation for those who put their trust in Jesus. Forgiveness. Have you got forgiveness of sins today? He also provides love. Romans 8. 38 and 39. On the sheets that I had for handout, it says Romans 3. My mistake. Make a snowman out of that three and you got the right passage. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers nor height or depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I are promised the provision of God's love. If you've turned to him and had him forgive you of your sins, he gives you his love and nothing can take you from that. Nothing can remove you from that. He provides salvation. John 3, 16. Say it right, church. For God so loved. He had could we don't just do for God so loved the world. And aren't you glad that little word so is there? Aren't you glad the Bible doesn't just say God loved the world? No, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then it goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, God didn't put the ark there to condemn. He put the ark there to save Noah and his family. He didn't bring Jesus here to send people to hell. He brought Jesus here to save people from hell. God provides forgiveness, love, salvation. God also provides Restoration. And that can be here, temporarily now, or it can be eternal when we go to heaven someday. God is in the business of restoring even lost things here for you and I. And and he can do that miracle. Maybe there's a relationship that's broken and you can turn to him. God can restore that. Maybe you're living in such a depression and you're so beaten down by everything and you don't think you can ever come back to joy. God can bring joy. But for some things... It'll take us getting to heaven to have those things restored. Maybe you lost somebody and they're a believer. You'll see them again someday. I I see two tracks of this restoration, by the way. I want to talk about Israel because remember I talked about the vines being destroyed? That was part of the destruction. They'd lost. And God says, I promise to restore that to you. I found a great verse for Israel. It's tucked away in Amos 9. You think Nahum was hard to find? Amos is way away. Amos 9:14, I will bring my people Israel back from exile they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them they will plant vineyards and drink their wine they will make gardens and eat their fruit see God he doesn't miss anything he heard the people cry out they tore down our vines and God told them in 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 Nahum 2 verse 2 I will restore your vines and you're like big deal who needs a grape anyway no no God's going to restore their vines he's going to give them fruit to eat again I've been in Israel and I, I found out while I was there, we were meeting with some people having this discussion and we was at a hotel lobby and I found out that Israel is now producing wine again. hadn't for a year you had to go to Rome or you had to go over to, you know, Sicily or whatever to get some good wine. But no, no, Israel themselves now are producing wine again and it's good wine and good for them. God restores things and, and they should celebrate in that fact that We once had no vineyards. They burn them down. That's what looters do. They come in and they they tear down the vines and they torch them and there's nothing left for generations. But God says, no, I'll give it back. I love that about God. But then for us today, 1 Peter 5 and verse 10 says this, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you, make you strong and firm and steadfast. And then in Acts 3, 19 and 20, Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. See, God sent his son, and they called him Jesus. Jesus, the one who saves, and he restores. I remember The day before we lost Bob, I remember coming to the house. I have a picture on my phone. I have not shown anybody. It's just mine. It's of Bob sitting in his chair with his blanket. And I went and talked to Bob, Pastor Bob, and he was in pain. But he, he's always funny and sarcastic and cutting jokes. And, but at one point he looked at me and he said, Don, this old tent is ripped and torn and tattered and I'm done. I'm tired. God took him home. You know what? God promises restoration. So, you know what? Bob's not weighed down by an old earthly tent that had holes and tears and moths flung and on. God gave Bob his new body back. And, and when Bob got to heaven, he took off on our sprint and go find his brother and go find Jesus. And Bob is restored. And the same thing happens for all of us as believers. We know that God makes all things new. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new is here. So what's new about you? God's in the business of restoration. I put these pictures on there. I love before and after pictures. I, I saw this one, and, I, and this is not in my house. No, I didn't do this. You yeah. know, DYI. Uh-uh, trouble for me. You, you, yeah, Kevin ought to come to me. Kevin, you're like a DYI master over there. What you do is a, but I look at these projects, I'm like, no way. All I know is that one on the left, that's nasty, scratched up, divoted, ugly, dirty. And then somebody came in and they made it like new. Oh, I love the new I saw this too. I saw a whole thing on how you take tarnished silver and you can make it look new. And they showed all the tarnished silver and they held this one spoon out and they did the process and they did, Ooh, I love looking at the old and then see what the new can do. Oh, I love it. And I think we as believers don't don't really give God the credit for, yeah, he promised to save you, but he also promised to restore you, make you new. And some of y'all are beat up and scuffed up by this world. Some of y'all have been walked all over and you're tired of it and and some of you are tarnished we accept god into our life and we think it's going to be a picnic and all things are going to go well and all of a sudden bad things happen why because we still live here the sin-cursed earth and we're in the mire and the and and so we're tarnished and god says i'm gonna make it new some things can be made new here some things are gonna have to wait for eternity but god is in the business of making all things new i don't know about you but that gets me excited because i'm getting old I'm getting old and things are looking nasty. I, I always said I couldn't wait to be an empty nester. Julie and I always talked about this for years. You're like, when the kids are gone, it's going to be great. I'm going to run around naked all the time. I don't even want to see me anymore. I'm like, no, we don't run around naked. I just uh, We'd have to get rid of all the mirrors because, oh, I'm tired of the uh, problems, the back and the... Uh, the face, it's not what it used to be. I just, oh, it's, it's awful, the effects of life. And God says, I know, I, I told you, I told you. I told you, I told you, I told you. You're all in the process of dying every day. Sin had a toll, but God says, I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to take that away. And as a believer, I'm going to make all things new, not just the temporary stuff the relationship stuff, the, the the hurts and the pains. God's going to restore. And I'm so looking forward to that. But here's the bad news. The bad news today, the, the good news is that God warns. The good news is that God provides. But the bad news is that even after all of that, people still perish. And you can look at that. You can look at the book of Nahum and say, oh, God, wrathful. Why? So mad. Why? I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I only like the good one in Jesus. And and you're missing the point. The Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is simply God with skin on. We just don't know how to read the Bible sometimes and understand that that wrath is there so that you could see God's continuing cycle. He's going to warn. He's going to provide. And then people are still going to perish. Why? Not because God is bent on wrath. It's because people are refusing. People refuse to surrender and get forgiveness. So people Perish. The Bible has a very clear passage here, unless you repent. Luke 13, 3. Mark, put Luke 13, 3. Thank you. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Put on Luke 3, 5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too. Oh, that sounds like the same verse. Go back to Luke 13, 3. 3 says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Now give me verse 5. I tell you no, but on... Mark, what are you doing? we're just kidding. Mark's doing a great job. I warned him ahead of time. Don't worry. I I told him, I said, Mark, I'm going to do this to you. And everybody's going to turn around and look at you like you're messing it all up. He says, I can do it, PD. If you take a look in your Bibles, Luke 13.3 is the exact same verse as Luke 13.5. Now, you tell me this, when God has scripture written and he says a verse, and then one verse later, he says the same exact thing. Do you think we ought to pay attention? If it's very important to repeat, it's very important to listen to. And in Luke 13, 3 and verse 5, God says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will perish. And the sad news is that people perish. But people do not perish because God wants it to be that way. There's a great verse. God takes no pleasure. I want to read this verse to you and have you hear it and take it in. Ezekiel 18, 32. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. That's God's heart. God's heart is I warn and I provide everything you need for salvation. Don't perish. Don't die without salvation. That's our God. In His own words, I take no pleasure in anyone dying. So if you hear anybody talking about a God of wrath in the Old Testament and He doesn't love, no, no, no. You see the same story repeated. From creation to the flood. Do you remember when the Old Testament, God's people were getting bit by snakes? And God had a serpent put on a stick. And he said to the people, just look at the stick and you'll be healed. Some people refused. How stubborn do you have to be? When God provides, you're bit by a snake saying, I don't think that thing's going to work. So I'm not going to look. I'm not looking at that dumb stick. And, And died. You know, I can write a tombstone for that guy. Stubborn, you know. I see the pattern over and over again. God warns, God provides, people perish. Where are you in all that? I have made you, I will carry you, I will sustain you, I will rescue you, Isaiah forty six four says. I don't know why they put the picture on an old rhino, but I like it. The rhino is my favorite animal. If you go to my office, you'll see I've got rhinos all over my office. I've got a tattoo of a rhino on my arm. I love rhinos. Maybe it's simply because that rhino looks like it needs something. Face cream, I don't know. Tired, don't don't rhinos look tired? Beaten down? I don't know about you, but if you're living in this world and you feel like that scuffed up floor... And you feel like that tarnished silverware, you feel like this rhino in need of some restoration, some rest. God promises you that. So the question is today has God saved you? And I can't answer that question for you. But I do know this He's done everything on His side to make it possible, He's done everything. And it's not like the book of Nahum where it's prophetic first tense where it hasn't happened yet and it's talking about it. We have it now where it's happened already. And we can, it's, are you going to be stubborn and not look? Are you going to be stubborn and not accept salvation? Just as God lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, the Bible says. And so he went to a cross. And all you need to do is look to Jesus. Is it going to say stubborn on your tombstone? Is it going to say he refused to turn? You have an opportunity. And if you've never asked God to save you, forgive you of your sins, and come into your life, do it today. I'm going to ask the band to come and we'll close out this morning with a song. And while we're singing, you have an opportunity. There's no magic prayer. I usually don't even like to have people repeat a prayer after me because I don't want it to be my prayer for you. But I believe if you... In a conversation with God. Josh, do you mind if I let them know? I mean, Josh is sitting here in the second row, but we sat right here less than two weeks ago. And Josh said, it's time. It's time. And I prayed for Josh, and then Josh prayed to receive Christ as his Savior. And it's the best prayer I've ever heard. Because every time I hear somebody talk to God their first time and say, God save me, forgive me, it's the best prayer I've ever heard. There's no magic prayer. There's no. It comes from your heart. And if you're sincere and you ask God to save you, the good news is He's done everything already to do that. He's so ready. He is so ready to do that. If you ask, He will answer and He will provide. Don't perish because you're foolish. We're going to sing the song. What better song to end with than the goodness of God? i got to plug in. The goodness of God. And it's a testimony of how good God is.